In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles to this podcast, digital versions of the newspaper and much more. If that's something that interests you, go to heraldsun.com.au slash subscribe for more information. It's now sort of a love affair with having convict history in your family. But what is less well known is the amazing story, probably the saddest chapter of all that convict history, that there were so many child convicts involved, particularly boys. Putting you back into prisons and giving you severe punishments clearly not working. So well, we have no choice but to transport you to the other side of the world, beyond the seas. Probably England's boldest social experiment, if you like. It's had consequences which carry through today. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of our forgotten characters. In this episode, we cross to Tasmania to tell the story of two child convicts transported from England for minor crimes. It was a time when boys as young as eight and nine were torn from their lives in Britain and sent here, never to return home. Henry Sparks and Charles Campbell were among a staggering 3,000 child convicts sent from Britain and imprisoned at a place called Point Pure, a juvenile version of the notorious Port Arthur in Tasmania. They were two real-life Oliver Twists or artful dodgers from the Charles Dickens book, poverty-stricken petty criminals who had been doing their best to survive on the streets of Britain. In Tasmania, the boys' tragic lives took a shocking twist in 1843 when news broke that an overseer at the prison had been bashed to death and the two boys had confessed to his murder and faced being hanged. Their story is told in a new book by Steve Harris, former editor-in-chief of the Herald and Weekly Times. The book is called The Lost Boys of Mr Dickens and Steve Harris joins us today. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you. Now, I think most Australians know that tens of thousands of adult convicts came out to Australia, but I don't think that most people know that there were thousands of young boys that were also transported to Australia from Britain and some of them were as young as eight. Can you tell us about that? Well, there was an outbreak of serious crime in Charles Dickens-type England in the early 1800s, caused partly by the Industrial Revolution, which threw a lot of people out of work. Uh, The end of the Napoleonic Wars, which meant the demobbing of the army, which threw lots of men back into the workforce. And the result was that there were a lot of families really struggling to survive and get work. And as a result of that, young children were either abandoned into the street by their parents who couldn't afford to keep them or were forced onto the street and into crime to help keep the family going or were orphans. The result of that was that a rising tide of criminality amongst young people And in those days, children were treated as adults in the eyes of the law. England in the early 1800s had something like 220 crimes capable of capital punishment. And a lot of these were obviously not just for the serious crimes of murder and and so on, but also for petty crimes such as thieving, burglary, pickpocketing, etc. And these were the common things that children did to help keep themselves fed or keep their families fed. So they were facing capital punishment for those sort of relatively minor crimes. But the bigger backdrop to that was that uh, England was really fearful of the threat that they posed to their, their, their way of civil life in England. And they feared a sort of revolutionary outbreak. And there'd been previous riots where people were protesting about economic conditions and the army had shot some people. And obviously the big fear of a repeat of the French Revolution. So their answer was to impose all these laws and then put children into jail. And the net result of that was... The children became more hardened, obviously, and committed more crimes again. And one thing led to another. And uh, the the end result was that they decided they couldn't keep them 
in jails in England any longer. They had to be sent somewhere else. The somewhere else was as far away as possible, out of sight, out of mind. That was Van Diemen's land, or what is now Tasmania, at the bottom end of the world. So they sent them over there. And in the end, probably some 3,000 boys, as you say, as young as eight, nine, through the teenage years, were sent out uh, to save themselves from a future life of crime in England, but also partly to save uh, England from the threat that they were deemed to pose. And how many years did these boys spend locked up in Van Diemen's land? Well, they were sentenced, like the adult adult convicts, to terms of seven or 14 years, most commonly. A lot of adults obviously got life in prison as well, but most of the boys were seven or 14. And from their sentencing in the courts of England, they spent time on some uh, pretty awful jails in London and other parts of England, but particularly in London, then on prison hulks, which were terrible things uh, on the Thames, floating prisons then on the convict ships on the long and perilous journey to Australia and then into adult barracks in Hobart Town, basically, before it was decided that, that, that even that wasn't the answer. So it occurred over sort of 20 or, 20 or so years, probably England's boldest social experiment, if you like. It, it's had consequences which carry through today. And what happened to them after they'd served their sentences? Did any of them actually make it back to Britain? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, very few convicts got, got their way back. And that was the idea that they were to be exiled from their place of birth, their mother country, uh, whatever families they might have had. And that was the ultimate punishment for deciding to stray from what was known as the right path. The theory behind the establishment of Point Pure, which was a juvenile version of Port Arthur, and Point Pure was on the, across the bay from Port Arthur, which everyone knows, it was a landmark in juvenile crime and law and order because it was the first purpose-built, state-built facility for juveniles, exclusively for juveniles, and operated by the state. It brought together the the emerging theories of not only crime and punishment, but also incentives of of eventual freedom, some training in some trade or school, uh, moral education, which was code for religion, and some basic literacy classes. And the idea was that they would eventually become useful citizens in Van Diemen's land. But the problem was that the investment in Point Pure didn't match the intent and there was never enough resources to deliver much beyond discipline, which they got plenty of, and not much in the way of useful moral education or skilled training or education. So very most of them were sort of had a deprived childhood in England, basically denied what you and I would call a real childhood. And then after the sentences through the jails and the prison hulks and the ships and, the, uh, and Point Pure in Tasmania, they were still ill-equipped for for life in society. So they were basically put back on the street of uh, Hobart Town with no education and no money and not much hope of getting a job because there was then a depression down in down in Hobart Town. So very few sort of made it in any sense of the word. A few of them went on and became quite good uh, tradesmen in their own right. Some made it across to Victoria and made a new life for themselves there. A number went on to become bushrangers. It was just a lifelong crime and um, rebellion and resistance. And many of them proportionately died younger than the average population because uh, they'd had such poor childhoods of impoverishment, poor diets, poor conditions, disease, etc. So the book is based around the story of two particular child convicts called Henry Sparks and Charles Campbell. What do we know about their early lives and how they wound up as child convicts in Van Diemen's Land? Well, I guess like uh, thousands of other young kids, they were basically on the streets. Uh, Charles Campbell was in Aberdeen and Henry Sparks in Nottingham. Around the ages of 10 or 11, they were engaging in relatively minor crimes and being given two, three-month sentences in houses of correction, as they were called, which was an attempt to sort of, through severe discipline and, uh, and even spending time on treadmills, which were huge stone wheels 
grinding out corn, etc., that they would learn that crime wasn't the way to go. But, uh, of course, they're mixing with adults in prison, so they learn from those criminals about uh, the rewards that could be had from criminality, the, their attitudes hardened. So they're frequently back before the courts and eventually magistrates, Charles Campbell and Henry Sparks' case, typically said, look, putting you back into prisons and, and giving you severe punishments clearly not working. So well, we have no choice but to transport you to the other side of the world, beyond the seas, as they called it. And, and this is also in the backdrop of a proclamations being put out in the name of the young Queen Victoria, that magistrates and judges were being urged to take a hard line on those that society deemed had declared war on itself. Uh, and they were the terms they used. So the punishments were pretty severe. I think one of them was uh, stealing some clothing to uh, sell to buy some pies. So that was his final crime. The other one was for stealing a few few half pennies, for which they received seven-year sentences. So they then went through Millbank Prison, which is on the Thames across from Westminster Abbey, and which is a pretty ordinary place. And then on prison hulks, which were even more ordinary. And as I said, then through the convict ships and eventually to Hobart. So just stepping back to life in the streets, I like the way in the book you describe them as being like real life Oliver Twists or Artful Dodgers. What do you mean like that? Tell us about the links to the Dickens book. He wrote about these kids on the streets and what they were up to. And he had some empathy with them because Dickens himself had, uh, after his father was jailed, he was forced to fend for himself because uh, Dickens Sr. and family were put in jail because he couldn't pay some debts. Charles, at the age of 14, was uh, basically put out to work in a factory. So he knew how harsh life could be and he had some empathy. And he also had a lot as a reporter, which he's less well known for in his days reporting parliamentary debates for the Morning Chronicle and other papers before he became a more seriously known author. He decried the hypocrisy of um, politicians and magistrates and others who thought they were doing the right thing but uh, couldn't see the consequences or the short-sightedness of what they were doing. So... Charles Campbell and Henry Sparks were typical but real-life people that uh, Dickens otherwise wrote about as fictional characters. There were thousands and thousands of them. It led to London employing its first metropolitan police force because they thought there were some 50,000 kids wandering around the streets of London committing various crimes. It was the crime capital of the world. Society was horrified. People felt threatened by the loss of um, property from their homes or, or persons. These young kids were not godly or Christian in any sense of the world. Their language was pretty profane. They enjoyed a drink. They enjoyed gambling. And they enjoyed living together as, uh, in a sexual sense at a fairly young age. So it threatened all sorts of mores of English life, which was why they thought that, that in a sense, war had been declared. On the other hand, the kids, the Oliver Twist-type characters like Sparks and Campbell, eventually became more hardened and they didn't see man or the law as their friend. Both sides were kind of hardening their attitude towards each other with inevitable and sad consequences. And there's an interesting section in the book where you talk about the hierarchy on the street and the more serious the crimes they had committed, the higher esteem they were held in. And also, in particular, some of the, the flash patter or the slang that they used to describe each other. Can you tell us about some of those terms? Yeah, there, there was definitely a hierarchy there. Yeah. The more serious the crime, the more self-esteem a boy felt he had. And uh, that's what they were about. It was about sort of self-esteem and survival. And they had their own language, partly because it was a camouflage against the law, because they could use terms that uh, the police didn't understand. And as soon as the police worked out what they were saying, they would change the language. But in the hierarchy of the sort of crimes of pickpocketing and thieving that they were involved with, it was what uh, was known as flash language or flash patter. Boys were known as uh, files if they picked pockets to steal watches or jewellery, or they'd be a sneak. Uh, was the term used for those who would literally sneak into a shop and sneak some money out of the till while the shopkeeper wasn't looking. 
small boys were known as snakes because they were the ones who would wriggle into small spaces or down chimneys to get inside houses to open the door or the window for other boys to come. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. And, ...and burgle the place. And then there were those known as the swell mob. Uh, and these were boys who procured some reasonable-looking clothes so they actually looked well-dressed so they could mix with the richer folk at either rate horse race meetings or, or on the finer streets and mingle you know, more, more easily to commit their crimes. And I think my favourite term was the one for those on the bottom of the hierarchy, which was pudding snammers or those who only stole from bakeries to feed their hungry stomachs. Yeah, they were the ones who literally were thieving to feed themselves and put something into their stomachs. And whether they stole puddings or pies, they were the pudding snammers. So they weren't in the hierarchy of juvenile criminality. They weren't taken terribly seriously. And they were definitely at the bottom of the pile. Whereas at the other end, those who committed uh, really daring or very artful dodges um, or serious crimes were uh, held in high esteem. And obviously in the prison cells and the prison hulks, boys would hear older boys tell tales of... Uh, their adventures and uh, this sort of life on the street was uh, a lot more attractive than the alternative which was to go and work in a perhaps a textile factory as a young boy and work long hours in dangerous conditions and you know at risk of life and limb as it were for not much whereas the rewards of money and adventure and uh, as I said drink and gambling and other things on the street was a lot more attractive. So once they were sentenced to be transported to Australia, they still spent quite a period in prison and on the the prison hulk before coming out. What would life have been like for them then? And what were the conditions like for Henry Sparks and Charles Campbell? Very ordinary would be the short answer. Millbank Prison, which was uh, built on the Thames, it was very marshy land. It was built as the the modern prison of its time, uh, an optican design, which was a means of having guards in the centre, being able to watch several wings of prisoners at any one time. So constant surveillance, constant silence. But the marshy land and the cold stone meant there was a lot of disease, food was ordinary. The prison guards weren't necessarily upright and honourable people themselves, so there's a lot of internal crime crime going on. There was the beginnings of the sort of the fagging system where bully boys at the top of a hierarchy would force younger boys to steal food for them or pilfer stuff or uh, overlook any crimes they were committing. And if they didn't, they were at risk of being punished by the boys themselves. So that was at Millbank Prison, for example, when they were moved from there to the uh, prison hulks for their, to await their transportation to, uh, to Australia. These prison hulks were decommissioned naval ships, no longer fit for service, stripped of their, their equipment, naval equipment, and just turned into floating prisons and several decks of cramped conditions described by one as not much better than animals in a zoo. And again, the same sort of hierarchy of abuse and uh, resistance by the boys. And again, squalid conditions, uh, a lot of deaths because of the disease, uh, a very ordinary existence indeed. And what about life once they made it to Van Diemen's Land? What was it like at Point Pure? Was it much the same? 
Yeah, well, Hobart at that stage was, you know, after Sydney was was the number two city in Australia, and this was before Melbourne really took off in the uh, sort of the 1830s, 1840s. The mood down there was that uh, all the too many kids were coming out, and they were of no use to the government trying to build roads and uh, bridges, so they didn't have the skills or the strength, and they were too insolent and rude to be of use to the servants as servants for settlers or working on farms. So, having been ensconced in the barracks and at risk of what they call moral contamination. Uh, the governor decided to build Point Pure, where which started off as not much more than a collection of farmhouse barns, really, but to house about 60 or 70. But as the number of kids coming out grew and grew and grew to several hundred on, on, on many ships per year, uh, it just grew and grew to the point where it ultimately took and held probably seven 700-odd kids at any one time. And it was divided into facilities, dormitories of hammocks with uh, very little bedding, cold, uh, bleak down there in that part of Tasmania, the winds whipping up from the Antarctic, so pretty freezing conditions. A few resources, they were meant to be separated from males, which is the whole point of setting it up, but the, uh, the government was forced to use adult convicts from Port Arthur as overseas because there wasn't enough money to provide suitably trained teachers or uh, trade instructors. The administration of Point Pure was by the uh, commandant of Point Arthur, this is uh, Booth, his name was, he was already, Charles Booth, he was already uh, fully occupied running Port Arthur, which was a you know, substantial establishment in itself. And uh, Point Pure was sort of an add-on. Because of his regimental military training, it was easy for him and his soldiers to impose the disciplinary part on the kids. And uh, they had a long list of what he called uh, misconduct crimes, which were sometimes nothing more than um, being absent without leave, perhaps down on the, on the rocks doing a bit of fishing, pinching some food, taking stuff out of the, uh, the government soldiers' orchards, pretty minor stuff in the scheme of things, but they would lead to their own sentences in the crime section of either time in a cell, sometimes in solitary, denied food and fed on bread and water for some time, and sometimes even sent across to Port Arthur to spend time amongst the adult convicts as, as part of their uh, punishment. So the discipline was in uh, no short order, but there was a shortage of uh, scholastic and trade training. So it was probably inevitable that, in that within that system, some boys would uh, gravitate towards any hope of improving their lives and behave themselves as best they could and warm to the lessons that they could get their hands on, while a bunch of others simply became more hardened and more resistant and did what they could to survive, provide their own self-esteem and add some meaning to their lives. And what do we specifically know about Henry Sparks and Charles Campbell and their time there and what they got up to? Both of them engaged in crimes of misconduct amongst those small things. They were both punished for it uh, bit by bit, uh, but nothing particularly out of the ordinary compared to you know, hundreds if not thousands of others it is just that on a particular day in 1843 in the middle of the day Charles Campbell went up to one of the overseers one of the uh, convicts from Port Arthur and said oh very casually that one of the other overseers is lying down in the yard one thing led to another the guy lying down in the yard had been uh, severely bashed uh, it was near death and of course the uh, the local administrators and soldiers were horrified and demanded to know which of the boys had done the had done the deed uh, Eyes went quickly to Campbell because he'd raised the alarm. He and Sparks were amongst about 20 boys present at the time. And I guess the uh, Commandant Booth and others were determined that on this first murder in the boys' prison, where they were meant to be putting them on the right path and saving them from a life of crime, here we had the highest crime of all being committed. So they were shocked and it was very much an eye for an eye attitude down there in terms of punishment. And just because they were small boys, there was going to be no exception. So they tried very hard to press the boys to confess and, and reveal who did it. But there was an inquest which nominated Sparks and Campbell as the two primary culprits. 
Now, whether they were uh, truly the, the culprits or the only culprits or were being scapegoated by administrators determined to put someone on trial or had been pressured into it by other bully boys, still up for grabs, I think, in terms of what the real truth is. But they went to trial nevertheless uh, for murder and uh, faced a walk on the scaffold. So having looked through all the evidence, what do you think? Were they guilty? It's hard to say. I think there's no doubt that amongst those 20 boys that some of them bashed this uh, guy to death. I think if Charles, if Charles Campbell and Henry Sparks were involved to some degree, it was either under some duress from bully boys or that they were amongst a pack of boys involved but were sort of, for other self-serving reasons, were fingered by their peers as the two main culprits. And then the administrators determinedly to try and put someone on trial, pick them as the two weakest links, if you like. So just to sum up, as a society, what do you think we've learnt from this period in our history? Well, you sort of wonder sometimes whether we ever learn from history, but um, what's, what struck me in writing the book was, um, you know, if you talk about the sort of the, the moral panic in, in Britain, which uh, led to the harsher and harsher laws and harsher and harsher punishments and putting people in exile as the only answer, that you, you swing, that seems like ancient history, but it's only 150-odd so years ago, but you bring forward to today and society and communities still get very concerned when young people in particular behave in a way that threatens their way of life or their values, now, whether they're teenage street gangs or um, different ethnic groups and their behaviours, etc., that if, if any crimes are committed, the, the community is quickly shocked. You know, the media at the time and now you know, sort of demands action. The politicians are under pressure to do something. And it's often sort of uh, you know, more punishment, more laws, solitary confinement, all those sorts of issues. And the fact is then and now those things can have unintended uh, and other negative consequences because what happens is people sort of see the headlines and, and don't really look below the surface of the lives that other people are, are leading and the, and the context and the feelings and the values they have which have led to the crime in the first place. So just as we think it's horrible that uh, you could hang children in the 1800s in England for minor crimes, well, that's all gone. But the fact is that in England and in Australia, for that matter, that the age of criminal responsibility is still very young by world standards. It's at 10. And people were horrified by solitary confinement in those days, but we still have solitary confinement in various forms in uh, institutions in Australia and human rights activists and the United Nations and others decry this as a form of mental torture, which should be banned. So I think the balance of sort of punishment and incentive and training and uh, you know, whether the uh, dysfunctional family should cause the state to intervene to protect children. How's that decided? Who decides? Uh, is it the state or is it uh, the courts? The establishment of children's punishment facilities, all these things we still haven't got right, despite all the years and all the history we have to learn from. I'd love it if you could just sum up these two boys, who they were and what makes them such interesting characters for us to learn about. Well, I guess um, the story of the, the convict history was something that Australia and Tasmania in particular sort of tried to forget and uh, brush away. It's now sort of a, a love affair with having convict history in your family now. But what is less well known is the amazing story, probably the saddest chapter of all that convict history, that there were so many child convicts involved, particularly boys. And they're relatively anonymous and haven't had a voice, didn't have a voice in their childhood, didn't have a voice at Point Pure and haven't had a, much of a voice since. So their story has been relatively silent but I think they deserve to have a voice because they were innocent victims of conditions and circumstances in Britain and of the um, you know, moral panic, prejudice and harsh justice of, of the day. So 
if you like Charles Dickens and uh, Oliver Twist and all his characters, then these are two real boys caught up in all those forces and uh, and how their lives went from typical innocence and hope of childhood to basically not much of a childhood and then into into adulthood where they um, were standing trial and, and facing a face-to-face meeting with the hangman on the scaffold, which is uh, terribly uh, kind of sad and, and dramatic, but it's, it's also a very human story, which is, I think, that's the key element. Thank you for sharing a very sad but fascinating tale with us, Steve. Good to talk to you. And if listeners want to read more about Henry Sparks and Charles Campbell, you'll find a link to a story and illustrations and an extract from the book in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of our forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Peter Fuller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.